This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries, official sponsor of Faction 46 and Nice Motorsports Truck Series teams. Forney offers versatile welding and plasma cutting machines, along with a full line of metalworking accessories for beginners, do-it-yourselfers, and professionals. Forney has everything you need for your next metalworking project. Shop for these top-of-the-line products at ForneyIND.com, that's F-O-R-N-E-Y-I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's so, the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good. And then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappeared. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken and I was a chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. <laughs> So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Bought Podcast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. After a couple months, it was, you know, like two lines in the same den. It started getting a little bit crazy. 
me and Mike had nothing to do with what had went on, but we were paying the price. We didn't know what was going on. We were just two people trying to make a living. Mr. Beatty said that'd be a five hundred dollar shooting in the bird. I stood up on the wall and shot two. <laughs> I turned around and told Buddy, I said, "Tell me, give me a thousand dollars worth." We could kill the cylinder coming off the corner, and when he got off the button, it would pick up all four, all eight cylinders. That wasn't legal. No, it wasn't legal. <laughs> <laughs> the day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace, and a track that cares about NASCAR history. I don't know about you, Steve, but all seems right with the world this morning. The number 43 car driven by Eric Jones and fielded by Petty GMS Racing went to victory lane last night at Darlington, and we have some awesome comments over on YouTube that I wanted to share. Yes, indeed. I tell you what, Rick, we all know that times change, but there was a time when the number 43 car won a race at Darlington or anywhere else. That was not so much of a surprise, but over the years, as I said, things have changed. And now a 43 car winning with that young driver, Eric Jones is a Big surprise, if you ask me, and I think it's good for the sport. And to do it at Darlington. Yes, indeed. Yes, sir. Quite a feather in the team's cap, no doubt. A car with Richard Petty's name on it won at Darlington 55 years to the day after Richard broke his daddy's record at that very same track for most wins in NASCAR history. It was also the 200th win for car number 43. Now, a lot of people might look at that and say, well, Richard Petty was car number 43. He won 200 races. So what happened there? Six of Richard's wins came while driving car number 41 and another came using car number 42 in the early 1960s. I don't know why all that was, but it was the 200th win last night for car number 43. How about that? I tell you what, Eric Jones has got to be one proud driver this morning that he took the number 43 car to his 200th victory. And again, I'll emphasize, it was a Southern 500. What a night for Eric Jones and Richard Petty. Other drivers who have won driving car number 43 other than Richard and other than Eric Jones include Lee Petty, Jim Pascal, Bobby Hamilton, John Andretti, and Eric Amarola. You have done your homework, Rick. I am proud of you. <laughs> yes, I have. We have said it so many times here on the podcast, but we are a show all about NASCAR history. And kind of our motto is the same vault podcast is where the sports past meets its present and its future. And that happened last night in Darlington. And Rick, you said it just right. We're all about history in the end. We're all about history. And guess what? History was made last night at Darlington. Now, as for those comments that I mentioned, 
Uh-oh. I want to share a couple of comments, actually three comments that we got over on our YouTube page. Listen to this, Steve. All right. I'm ready. The history of stock car racing burns brighter each time you all put the coal to it. Keep shoveling. <laughs> now, I like that. That's a little bit of prose there. I like yeah. that. I'm glad I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, here's another one. I don't know who this person is, but this is what they had to say. This channel is a hidden gem of some of the best content on the internet. Please keep up the good work. I love listening to these stories. I'm confident that one day your channel will be discovered by the masses and get you all the views and huge subscriber counts you deserve. Now I will say this. We have done a pretty good job of keeping this under wraps so far. <laughs> <laughs> but I like what was written there too. Very much so. Steve, in all seriousness, here's the thing. When we first started, you and I would talk and we would be stunned when we were getting what we thought was the astronomical figure of 200 downloads per episode per week. That's right. I, am a, I remember that. Oh, we thought we were rolling when we had 200 downloads per week. But by the time that we reached our 100th episode, which was, I believe it was June or July of 2020, we did the 100th episode with Mike Helton. At that point, we were at about 1,400 downloads per week. And that really surprises. Well, wait till you hear this. All right. A couple of months past our 200th episode, we are now doing about 6,400 downloads per week. Ever growing, ever growing. I like it. That is an increase of more than 350%. And yes, I did have to use a calculator. For that. <laughs> <laughs> and over on YouTube, if we continue at our current growth rate, we should hit 10,000 subscribers by the end of the year. Now, we are nowhere near what we were once numbers wise, but I'm hoping that right now we are nowhere near what we will be in the future. I agree with you, Rick. I really hope so. I know we're working toward it. We got some things in the works. We're talking to people and you know, I'm not a businessman. I I'm not a entrepreneur. I'm not a marketer or salesman or anything like that. But with that being said, we've got a good product. And for people to make comments like that on YouTube, on social media, on Twitter, we're all the time getting encouragement and thumbs up from our listeners. Well, most of our listeners and viewers at any rate. Here's the other comment that I wanted to share from over on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> Some of your interviews have been so boring. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Okay, fine. That goes to show you that you can't please everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I'm stunned that Jenny wrote that. <laughs> Simply the bottom line is this. We are growing. There's room for more growth. And we're trying to everything that we can to do that. So you never know what might happen next. That's true, Rick. We may not be businessmen or entrepreneurs, but we are racing journalists we are nascar racing journalists this is what we do and we know what we're doing you can't say it any better than that this week 
in the third and final installment of our epic interview with Pete Wright, Pete talks about the friction that existed between Junior Johnson's teams, the controversial suspension of Junior and Crew Chief Tim Brewer going into the 1991 edition of the Winston All-Star Race and how he and teammate Mike Hill felt like they were left holding the bag a little bit. Then Pete also remembers leaving Junior Johnson and Associates to rejoin Terry Labonte and Billy Hagan and the neat little trick that almost got them a win at North Wilkesboro. And when I say trick, it was a trick. Exactly. Finally, Pete discusses his long association with MB2 Motorsports. Then in our second segment, we're going to go back to the October 7th, 1993 issue of Winston Cup scene. Rusty Wallace wins at North Wilkesboro, but he doesn't gain much ground on runner-up Dale Earnhardt in the Winston Cup standings. Harry Labonte finishes seventh in that event, despite developing, wink, wink, engine problems. (laughs) (laughs) More rule changes designed to slow speeds at Charlotte and Atlanta were tested and, of course, debated. Buddy Baker (laughs) announced plans to retire as a driver with additional features in this issue on John Andretti's transition from IndyCar to NASCAR a book of poetry on the late Alan Kowicki, and the mentor of every NASCAR historian, Greg Fielden. This week, we have PayPal support from Hallie Emery, Henry Sams, and Bill Stripling. So Hallie, Henry, and Bill, thank you guys. I don't know what else to say other than that. Thank you. You allow us to do what we do best, and that's talk about NASCAR history. That's going out and getting these interviews, this great content that we get, it would not be possible without that support. So Hallie and Henry and Bill, again, thank you from the bottom of my heart. I really mean that. Listeners, if you can, please consider supporting us on a monthly basis. You can do that at patreon.com slash the same vault podcast. Or if you would prefer to do a one-time show of support, you can do that via paypal.me slash the same vault podcast or venmo.com slash the same vault podcast. And as a reminder, this show is not affiliated or associated in any way with American City Business Journal's owner of the same brand. How did you find out that Daryl was leaving at the end of the 86 season to join Hendrick? He'd already announced it that first of that year. Uh, later on, he had pretty much decided he was going to leave. Him and Junior weren't getting along, but they thought the world of each other. Um, I think it was a deal where Daryl wanted to get better and move forward in a lot of areas that we weren't and he thought we're going with Hendricks, everything, you know, with Waddell and the dream team, Randy Dorton and all them, he could start working on things would start improving from the way he wanted it. Basically we were like a second rate team to him at that time, but he won races. We won races that year with him. And uh, basically at Watkins Glen, when he's finally, sat down and, you know, told us, I'm gone. 
and and y'all gonna start hearing things. I'm going and everything else. So that's when we started working on getting another driver. Well, I'll be honest with you. Junior wanted to hire Dale Earnhardt. It was a known fact. He loved Dale. He was a he was friend, him and Ralph were friends. And Budweiser wouldn't let him. Budweiser did not want him to hire Dale for some reason. Who knows back then? So after that, basically, he asked me, and Terry's contract was up at uh, Bailey's, and he was ready to leave. He said, I want you to call Terry and tell him to come see me. I said, okay. So I called Terry that night from my house, told him, I said, listen, I said, when can you come up here and talk with Junior? He said, what, what about? I said, I don't know. He just wants to talk to you. He said, well, I'll work on that. And I said, what I do? He said, what's the number that I can get a hold of him at? And I gave him Junior's number, 2101. I'll never forget it. And uh, next thing, about a week later, I'm coming back from lunch, and I meet this Junior's uh, Explorer coming out. Oh, no, it was Fort Suburban at that time, coming out of the driveway, and I look, Terry's in the passenger seat. And Bill Lowridge, which was a great friend of Terry's, was uh, with him. He was kind of like Terry's back man, you know. Yeah. And that's how we got Terry. Well, <clears throat> back when you uh, had two teams, mm -hmm. right? Uh Number one, how how big a role do you guys play in hiring the you know the members of the second team? Oh, we had a big role in it. And what was the dynamic like between the two teams? It was good. Mm -hmm. See, what we wanted Junior to do is we wanted him, and we begged him to do it like this. We wanted him to put Tim Brewer in charge. Hammond had already left. Okay. He, we wanted him to put Brewer in charge of both teams. Let me be Terry's crew chief. Let Mike Hill be Sterling's. Well, Sterling and Mike were, they had a, you know, they'd known each other since they were kids too. And, but in the background. Was that, was that with? Sterling. Was that, okay, that was with Bill and Sterling, correct? No, that was with Terry and Sterling. Early. No, Jeff and Jeff and Okay, all right, gotcha. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, with yeah, Jeff yeah. and okay. I, I right. got yeah. messed gotcha. up. Yeah. And Terry had done left. It was Jeff. I was gonna be Jeff's crew chief. Because we'd race modifieds against each other and I thought the world Jeff both down. I thought he was a great great racer and still is. And um but in the background we had Banjo Matthews back here telling him he needs to hire Mike Bean to run Sterling Steve. And he kept ragging me about it. Finally, we start building cars, getting cars ready to go. You know, we thought we was going down the same road that we had planned on, and everything's going to be great. Then all of a sudden, Mike Beam shows up. And when he shows up, and we had to go back to the way we were before that, which we was okay with that. Don't get me wrong. We all loved working together. Uh, after that, it was kind of like after a couple months, it was, you know, like two lines in the same den. It started getting a little bit crazy. 
between the two teams yes. or between Tim and Mike? Or? Uh, just between the teams, basically. Okay. Yeah. Um, um, that was, yeah, that was, uh, it wasn't a good time by no means. But eventually Mike, you know, took over. 1991, Jeff's with the team, and Junior and Tim wind up getting suspended over a big engine leading into the Winston. <laughs> what happened? Well, I'm not really sure. I've been told all kinds of stories. J.B. Range is the one that built that motor, and he swears up and down he put the wrong crankshaft in. And... I know we'll forget when that happened. Never. It's like a bad dream. We're at at uh, Charlotte tearing down, and that's also the same race that Junior spun Billy France out driving the pace car. They had that champion driver championship. The old drivers, yeah, Elmo yeah, and yeah, Junior, yeah. and some Elmo of them. Elmo yeah. won the race, yeah. and Junior. Was leading, and Junior spun Billy France out. Embarrassed Billy, I guess. That's when him and Billy, their friendship was gone. Over that? A lot of it, and some other things that led up to it. And uh, I know we'll get after the race we turned down. And Bobby Scruggs. Oh, Bobby. Yeah. He's dead now, but he was, a, I love Bobby. Yeah. He come from Franklin County Speedway. And he, uh, he was measuring the stroke and everything on our motor, and it kept coming up a little bit. I mean, not hardly enough. So he says, I'm not doing, you know, maybe something ain't right here. The piston's moving, he did it again. Finally, here come Art Krabs. Art didn't like to, anyway. So he said, what's wrong? And Bobby kind of pulled him over to the side and told him. Well, Art gets up there, and he goes, he goes, oh, God, you know. He said, Mr. Beatty, Mr. Beatty, come here. Of course, everybody came. And Art couldn't talk like, hey, we got a problem here. It was like when he talked, everybody in the garage could hear him. And we were in that old garage Old Arca garage and they're next to the hospital deal. And all of a sudden, they come Beatty and Billy France. And I, I, me and Billy talked a lot. I love Billy. Uh, we had a good, I had a good relationship with Billy France, Jr. And uh, they started talking about it. He says, well, y'all pull that motor out. I want that motor, Beatty said. We'll check it again tomorrow, and we'll go from there. So Billy France, just trying to show his authority, says, I want that intake. Where's the rest of this motor? And was laying on the back of a pickup truck. We was going to put everything in there. He said, I want them. He says, I want them cylinder heads. I want that carburetor. I want that GD this and GD that. I turned around and told him I wasn't the GD motor man. I was just standing there. And they took everything and took it to Beatty's uh, house, measured it again, showed it like three points too big. 
And that was the end of it. So then, then that's when all hell broke loose. Uh, Brewer showed his displeasure with the motor builder at that time, there at the shop. We had to go to <laughs> uh, Charlotte to run the 600. Junior and Budweiser kind of helped me make a decision because Tommy Ellis was driving bush cars at that time, you know. And Junior got him to drive the car. I'll never forget. It was just, we'd get to the racetrack. They wouldn't even let us park in the same garage. They made us park down there in that old Arca garage. Just us. They gave us a number. Put a number on. We had John McKenzie with us from Motorsports Designs, which had a lot of a lot of decals and stuff made up with numbers. Because they wouldn't tell us what number we could have. Well, we'd get, you had to come up the hill to get out on the track. By the time we got to the hill, they stopped Tommy. We said, what's wrong, Tommy? They tell me to come back. He backs back into the garage. They come down and says, y'all can't run that number. It's not been okayed. We pulled it off. Me and Mike Hill. Well, we put them up. They said, well, this is the number you got right here. Well, we put that number on there. We back out, pull up the top of the hill, and they stop us again. Says so the number hadn't been cleared by NASCAR. He backs back down to the garage. We pulled the number off. Were put they another doing, number on. Were they doing that just to yank Yeah, they were just doing that. Okay. And they and we didn't. Me and Mike had nothing to do with what had went on, but we were paying the price. The way we looked at it, we hadn't been done anything wrong. We didn't know what was going on. We was just two people trying to make a living. Well, the third number pulled up there. It didn't pass. Finally, Mike went up to the NASCAR trailer, and pretty much I didn't go because I knew I'd end up getting in trouble. <laughs> And Mike went up there and pretty much said, you know, this is bull crap. There's 30 minutes left to practice. We want a number. They said, well, we'll give you one by the time you get back down there. Well, here come Mike. He walked all the way back down there. And they said, put 97 on it. And that's when we got to number 97. We had 15 minutes of practice. Tommy made about four laps. Practice was over. And that's what they... They had accomplished exactly what they wanted. Well, Tommy went out there and qualified 14. And we thought, well, you know, we bad. And just made four laps. Well, during the race, they get us for speeding on pit road. First time I'd heard that in my life. You know, because when, all during my career, there was no pit road speed. Then all of a sudden, after uh, what's his name got killed? Mike Rich. Bobby Rich. Rich, yeah. Bobby, uh, Mike Rich right? What yeah. his name? Got killed at Atlanta. They come up with pit road speed. So then all of a sudden, it's pit road speed. And uh, they said he was speeding on pit road. So we told him he had to do a drive-through. He does drive-through. Well, he was speeding then. Well, Buddy Morrow was a NASCAR official. He comes over to me and says, Buddy, he said, Pete says, Mr. Beatty 
So did y'all better not speed again. He parked. Okay. I looked up the tower and I shot him the bird, just like that, you know. And uh, Betty Moore come over to me, told me that Mr. Beatty said that'd be a five hundred dollars for shooting him the bird. Okay. I stood up on the wall and shot two. <laughs> I turned around and told Buddy, I said, tell him to give me $1,000 worth. <laughs> and, uh, but we finished the race that day. I don't know where we finished. But it, was, it wasn't that I was mad Dick. I, didn't, I respected Dick, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I wish he'd have never, I wish he could have lived forever, you know, in this sport. And, uh, and I apologized to him for it. And uh, Junior paid the fine. Um, or Flossie, who took care of it. And uh, it was just the fact that everything that had happened in a two-week span had just finally just took over my emotions. Yeah. And that's the reason I did it. How did you wind up leaving juniors? Were you there when Bill had the strong year in 92? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I left the first of that year. First of that year. And we'd run several races, and Pete Peterson came over to take my place because I had told him I was going to leave. And Where were you headed? Hagen okay. with Terry. So I go back over there in the middle of 82 with Terry, 92. Nine. But I was still considered part of the team because when I left, I went down to tell Junior I was leaving. He kind of had heard that I was going back to Hagen. And I told him I'd stay, you know, I told Brew and all of them I'd stay as long as I could. But Pete had come there, Peterson, and he was going to take my place. And I thought the world Pete Peterson. And it was a good fix because him and Brewer had worked together at MCN back when Kale was driving for him. And uh, I went down there, Junior's washing the dog light out. They all, and I turned around and looked back, and every one of them looking at the door because they said, Junior's going to go off when you tell him. He's standing there watching us. Junior, I said, can I talk to you a minute? Yeah, go ahead. He's still watching. I said, well, I guess you done heard and I was thinking about it. He said, yeah, I kind of heard it. I said, said, I'm tired of everybody telling you about it. I'm going to come tell you now. I said, I'll go ahead and work the next race if you want me to. He said, yeah, I'd like for you to go ahead and work that one. And he says, also says, uh, He's still washing there. He turned around and looked at me. And he says, just leave your toolbox here. If you don't work out for you, you need to come back here. Let's come on back. I kept washing them. And I turned around and walked back up to the shop, and all the guys were like, holy cow. He didn't go off on you. We really said, I figured he'd shoot you with a damn water hose. But... You know, it was a, it was a, it was just a relationship I had with Junior. I mean, we were, I thought the world of him. I've been very fortunate in my career that I can probably name. I, I have worked with some fantastic people uh, that I have really always thought a lot of. And been friends. I mean, like Larry McClure tried to get me to come to work with him in Abington. 
He told my son, said, I'll let you go out on the parking lot and pick out any truck you want if you let your daddy come move the Abington. And, but I told her, I said, listen, we're friends. I come to work for you. That usually ends a friendship somewhere down the road. <laughs> Same with Bill Davis. Same understand. You know, the morning after Adam got killed, Bill Davis was probably the second person to call me. Arkansas. Daryl was first. Because Flossie had called Daryl and told well, you were Terry's crew chief when you moved back mm-hmm. in 93. Uh-huh. Was that always a goal for you? Was that something you strived to be? or No, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't really care about being a crew chief. Okay. I never did. You know, and I, I, and Billy said that he wanted to make me crew chief, and he kind of took it away. I went back there in 92 when I got there, and we started running good. We really started running good. Because all the cars were kind of messed up aerodynamically that I found. And we did a lot of work. We worked hard. And then Billy wanted to make me crew chief. And they kind of took that away from Dewey. And I felt bad about that. Uh, Dewey didn't like it. Dewey got mad at me. It wasn't my fault. And But, yeah, Terry wanted me to do it. So, uh, so you didn't go over there to be the crew chief? No, I went back to be a chassis specialist okay. and set the cars up and things like that. I didn't want I had a My problem during the race is I watched, all, I watched all the other teams, you know, their strategy, things they did during pit stops, things. I couldn't do that being a crew chief. I didn't like that. But anyway, I went ahead and tried to be. And we ran good that year. With what we had, I used to have to go over to Bill Davis's across the street and bar drive plates and anything I could from him that he wasn't going to run. And we would race them. And uh, we had Kellogg's. And about the, we went to Wilkesboro. We had, Terry had done talk to, well, no, he called me in the office one day, shut the door, Terry did. And we had been running, like I said, we had made people recognize us. Terry says, Jimmy Johnson called me last night. I said, what, from Dallas Cowboys? You know, at that time. He said, no. <laughs> he says, uh, from Hendricks. I said, oh. I said, what do you want? They want to talk to me. I said, what in the world are you doing standing here? Go talk to them. Go now. He said, I don't know. He says, all the guys here, I'm, you know, are really like family to me. So I think of world to everybody. I then had you come back over here. Everything's getting better. I said, okay, why put up part of your career trying to get things better when I don't think they will, and you can go there and things are better right off the start. He said, well, they said you could come too. He said, they didn't know if you could be crew chief, but you could be on the team. I said, uh, eh, I'll think about that. So sure enough, he went to meet with Jimmy, and you know, then he announced he was going to leave. We go to Wilkesboro. We want to win a race for Billy Hagen. We cannot stand not win a race for him. We go to Wilkesboro to test for a week, had an off week. We take three cars. We let Terry one day drive this car. It was a straight-up Lawton car. Then we had a banjo car. 
Then we had a Laughlin car with Hopkins front suspension. He drove each one for a day. We went through 20 sets of tires. Man, they weren't all the right tires, but they, you know, each time we ran, we tried to match them up with different yeah. cars. And we let him pick the car that he liked best. And he picked the uh, three-quarter, Laughlin three-quarter drop snout car. Well, the next day, the fourth day, we ran that car all day long. Made 100 lap runs with that car. We're going to go win that race. And we got pretty good. We go back up there. And in the meantime, Billy Hagan's come up with this idea. He's going to run John Andretti at um, Wilkes-Barre 2 and let Tex Powell take care of the car. And I was to furnish the car. And I sent a car down there. We go back up there. And Terry was leading the race. We had made, we'd come up with a deal where we could kill a cylinder. It was like trash and control back in. But we could kill the cylinder coming off the corner. And when he got off the button, it would pick up all four, all eight cylinders. But now, that, tires, wasn't, that wasn't legal? No, it wasn't legal. <laughs> <laughs> y'all said when I come in here and talk to y'all, I can uh, tell some stories. Well, I'm telling stories. So uh, I'm shocked. <laughs> so we we are actually leading the race, and there's fifty some laps to go. John Andretti's been in our way all day. We outrun Daryl and everybody with a little trick we had, and um, lo and behold, caution come out. Well, when the caution come out, the little trick we had quit. So we had all eight cylinders. I think that's the way it was. <laughs> no, we just had seven cylinders. It had killed that one cylinder completely. So we had come in and got four tires. Went back out third. And uh, when they threw the green, everybody else had new tires. We had new tires, but we couldn't run because we didn't have eight cylinders. We finished sixth that day. And we had spent a fortune and had worked our butts off to try to win that race, and that happened. And me and, me and Terry, I know we'll forget. Oh, we mm, talked about team cars, and we let it have it about that. But that was, you know, what we tried to do toward the end of the year, was try to win a race for them. By any means necessary. Mm. Uh-huh. By any means By necessary. any means necessary, we was going to win a race for Billy. And I don't think they would have caught what we had at that time. Uh, it was different. Yeah. I don't think they'd have caught it. The following season, you did wind up with Hutch Strickland and Travis Carter over there. Biggest nightmare of my life. How so? I was going to go to Ricky Rudd's. That's when he was starting his team. I didn't went up there and we didn't talk. Me and him and Linda. Now, was things with Billy just over or? It was getting over. And uh, I went up there and talked to him. And uh, I thought, well, okay, I might do this. But then we at Charlotte in the fall race, and Mike Hill comes to me and says, Junior and T. Wayne want to see you over the truck. Okay. So I go over there. 
and they're standing there. You know, T. Wayne Robinson loved him to death. You know, he's anybody made this sport. T. Wayne Robinson and Dale Earnhardt made this sport, as far as I'm concerned. And T. Wayne and Junior started telling about their plans to start a R.J. Reynolds team, and with the uh, Camel Cigarette brand. I didn't say nothing about smoking Joe or nothing like that at that time. And they wanted me to come and do it, be crew chief on it. And at that time, they weren't sure they were going to hire Hut. It might be Jimmy Spencer. It might be somebody else. And um, so, like a dummy, I turned down the deal at Ricky's because I thought the world of them two guys, and I knew that that would be the thing to do. So I did it. And... Uh, Travis didn't want me. He wanted Donnie. Donnie Richards. Uh, Rich, uh, no, Donnie from Budmore. Wingo. Wingo. Donnie Wingo. Yeah. Him and Wingo were tight. Well, we got cars. When I walked in there, we had nothing. We even had, we didn't have no people. We didn't have nothing. Brewer had sent a couple guys down, Dean Combs and Gary. Just a couple, and we had to hire some. We hired J.T. Townsend, Johnny Townsend, and a couple others. And Jim, <laughs> Travis come up to me and says, we need to hire my nephew. I said, What's, what team's he on now, Travis? He's, he's not. He's got some lawnmowers and stuff, but he ain't never worked in racing. We need to hire him. He'd make you a good man. I said, well, we don't have nobody now that knows how to work on race cars. <laughs> and uh, we had Barry Swift. Hired, he let me hire Billy Swift. Um, what's his name? Barry. Barry. Barry Swift. Barry. And uh, so we hired Larry. Larry Carter. And I told him everything I knew to teach him. And we... Uh, Never got to build a new car until the end of the year, toward the end of the year. He finally let me order a new car and build it, and we took it to Loudon. Fastest thing there, and qualifying, Hut spins out. Second day qualifying, Hut spins out. He's trying too hard. So, naturally, you didn't have the right setup in that car. Okay. Um, everything I ever heard was Donnie wouldn't do it that way. And... Uh, uh, Todd Parrott. He was a fan of Todd Parrott's too. Todd said you had to do this. Todd said you had to. I said, well, why don't you just hire Todd? Well, I can't get it. You know, Basin told me I, I can't get it. So we went on. We raced pretty much all year. We go to Michigan. We go out and we qualify. Well, about the time qualifying's over, there's Four cars left. Just so it happens, two of them was Felix Sabatis' cars. We done made the race, but we were on pretty much on the bubble. We was two away from getting bumped. And like I said, we was running old cars. We had motors that <laughs> they were pitiful. We actually ran one of Jack Roush motors in the Winston to see if you know, we could run better. And, of course, being a crew chief I am, it's always the motor. You know what I mean. It's just you have to blame it on something. And uh, they stopped qualifying, drive the track, and ran the bus cars. 
pulled them four cars down behind the wall down the turn one and covered them up and said after the race, after the bush race, they would qualify. Instead of just canceling qualifying and letting us do our deal, we sat in the truck the whole race thinking we need to start changing motors or what we need to do. Or we're going to get another practice or anything. Well, I'm a nervous wreck at that time. And Travis, he's wanting to know why we didn't run better and all this. T. Wayne's calling. He won't know what's going on. And uh, sure enough, they run the race. Track drives. They qualify them four cars. We was the last car to get bumped. It was 30 degrees cooler. I sent us home. And uh, a certain guy was in charge of NASCAR at the time. And he had worked with Felix. I think Mr. Nelson. And I think that's the reason it happened like that. I never was told that. But it pretty much, we get back to the shop next day. We had to go get a commercial flight and all back home. Anyway, funny part is the truck driver told me, he said, go to the motel, get my clothes out of the room. Bring them home with you. I said, okay. So I ain't got to go back to the motel, Oban Jackson. I get them. He says, in the bottom of the bag's a gun. I said, okay. Well, I didn't know. I didn't think no more about that gun. We get to the airport. <laughs> Larry Carter. Oh. Larry Carter says, "Pete says, what'd you do with uh, Wayne Jenks' gun?" I said, "Bull crap!" I said, "It's still here in the bag." He said, "You got to do something with it." So I pulled it out. Travis Senior. Oh, Travis went nuts. He said, throw it in the trash can. Throw it in the trash can. I said, I can't do that. <laughs> so I threw it in the trash can anyway, and I went up to the gate, and I got my ticket. And then I explained to the gate guy what had happened. What could I do to get that gun out of the trash can and get it on the plane? Well, he calls his manager, and he calls his manager, and it's all going on. He says, well, if you buy a gun case, you can ship it. I said, okay. I said, the gun's over there. You get it. Put it in a gun case. He said, well, you got to buy a gun case. Okay. I said, how much are they? He said, well, we don't have no pistol cases. All we got is for big guns. Okay, I'll take one of them. He brings out a case. (laughs) About six foot long and four foot wide to put a little thirty eight pistol in. I think the case was like almost four hundred dollars. They back had those then. at the airport? Yeah. What's somebody gonna carry to the airport that you're gonna have to ship and a rifle or something, like you know, going a bazooka over. or something. Yeah, but it was <laughs> a huge case. I got his gun home. Four hundred some dollars later. But anyway, the next day at the shop, Travis says, me and you need to talk. I said, yes, we do. We had 10 races left. He comes in there and he says, I'm going to take over setting the cars up and everything. I said, why? He said, I just think, I don't think you give them good enough cars. I said, okay. I said, 
when I set them up now, you you change everything after I leave to go home anyway, or you load reload the car. And he had done that several times. And uh, I said, okay, that's fine. I said, will T. Wayne let me have my car long enough to get home? I said, because I ain't going to go with your plan. I quit. He said, well, I figured you would. I said, yeah, I'm done. I don't need this. I got a contract at the end of the year. So I called T. Wayne, told him what, you know, that I was done. I was out of there. I'd bring his car back and just give me, let me go home. Well, T. Wayne just starts talking. Like, think about it. You know, this, we have been working to build this team. And I said, no, we're not. We ain't never going to build a team if the crew chief and the owner or whatever I'm working for, general manager, can't get along. It ain't going to happen. So I go home. I told my wife, I said, I'm done. I went there and got a lawn mower and started mowing the yard. Well, about 3 o'clock, big suburban pulled up in front of the yard. Daryl gets out. Want me to come to work for him. It was Daryl and Clyde Booth. Well, I told him I didn't want to do it. He said, well, says, we got 10 races. And I got pressure from Western Auto's finishing top 10 points. And I'm not 18th and 19th at the time. Well, I said, I can't do it. He leaves. Comes back. You got Stevie this time. Bring that big gun. Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> I agreed I'd go to work for him. Clyde talked to me and told me what I would make and all that. And we went to Bristol and almost won the race. Almost won the race that night. Almost won Dover. Uh, uh, Earnhardt had a flat note. Earnhardt had trouble. Rusty took the lead when Earnhardt had trouble. He had a tire and it was ended under caution. And Rusty didn't pit, so he won the race. We've been second. And, uh, you know, I spent the rest of the year, and I stayed there until um, he started hiring uh, Jeff Hammond back. Then he hired Waddell Wilson back. He was trying to find the combination so he could keep Weston Auto. Because at that time, Weston Auto was a good sponsor. They had a lot invested in Daryl, and I didn't have a problem with that. But I could just feel the pressure on me building. And I know we'll forget I answered the phone. And Pete Peterson was there. And it was Jay Fry. He says, Pete says, you don't mind if I talk to Pete Peterson, do you? He says, we got we're starting this team, you know, MB2, and we need a good man. I said, what about me? He said, what? He said, you interested? I said, yeah. He said, well, come talk to me. Well, that evening, I went and talked to him. The rest of it was history. I went to work for Jay. Because we started that MB2 team with Skittles, which at the time was a Rick Hendricks team, farm team, because he had Skittles as a sponsor. He had some friends from Georgia, and he started the team with them, Nelson Byers and Morton Reed and I can't remember the other guy. Uh, anyway... We were getting their cars, running their motors. It was a good deal. Had Pontiac. Pontiac wanted Hendricks to run a Pontiac because remember uh, Jack Sprague had drove 
some Pontiac at Atlanta and some other place, Phoenix. So we started that team then. That's how I left there and went to work for Jay. And I worked for Jay 13 years. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. Pete Wright talked about the dynamic between Jeff Bodine and Sterling Marlin's teams when they first became teammates at Junior Johnson and Associates and how eventually, Steve, those two teams and their crew chiefs, Tim Brewer for Jeff and Mike Beam for Sterling, they were acting like two lines in a cage together. And apparently they weren't getting along too well. I don't know what was actually happening, but multi-car teams are obviously the norm now. But in the 1980s and early 1990s, as we've discussed more than once, that was not the case. Why did two car teams back then have such a hard time making things work? Was it as simple as having too many roosters in the hen house? Well, that was part of it. But the real reason they had problems was they didn't understand what their association was. In other words, were they two separate teams under one owner? free to do whatever they like, just to be themselves? Or did they have to share information and technology and even people to make things work? Most owners in time said, you will share. We're going to apply every resource we've got. And that, I think, is pretty much the norm today. But back then, that was a tough situation because they didn't understand exactly what to do, nor did every team owner understand what to do in a multi-car team. Some of them really wanted these teams to be two separate entities unto themselves, while others soon learned they work better if you work together. And it may be along the lines of one team being an A team and the other team being a B team, a test team, and which one's which. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, exactly. Exactly. You know, one driver thinks he's the primary driver and the other guy's the test guy. And the test guy thinks that he's the primary guy. So but look at the difference today. Sometimes, as you know, Rick, teams will swap entire pit crews. Yeah. Team A's go over to team B's and team B's goes over to team A's just to make things work better. So you know that sharing the resources is now the norm. Qualifying for the 1991, the Winston at Charlotte, Junior and Jeff get busted for that big engine. And we talked to Tim Brewer and he is still hot under the collar about it. Pete Wright, he's the same way. Steve, you could see it in his countenance. He still gets fired up about that. And according to Pete, the team couldn't even park in the same garage as everybody else. And every time Tommy Ellis, the driver they picked to replace Jeff in the car because he was injured, and also suspended every time Tommy Ellis tried to make his way onto the track from what Pete said, NASCAR held him up and said that the new number the team had put on the car hadn't been approved. Goes back, gets another number. Nope. That one's not good either. And then Tommy gets busted for speeding on pit road during the race. He has to do a drive through and NASCAR says, that he is speeding again. <laughs> <laughs> Buddy Morrow, who was the NASCAR inspector on duty in their pit stall, he tells Pete, if he speeds again, we're going to park him. 
to which Pete responded by flipping the tower, the bird. <laughs> Buddy comes over and says, Dick Beatty says that'll be $500. So Pete climbs up on the wall and he shoots the bird with both hands. <laughs> He's going to get his money's worth. <laughs> That's right. That's right. This is a perfect situation of NASCAR trying to exact his revenge for a team that it feels has flaunted the rules. NASCAR, but doesn't like a team enough of what it's done or anything, has been known to make racing very hard on that team. No question about it. This was doubled because it was Junior Johnson, and Junior Johnson and Bill France Jr. did not get along at all. So you can imagine Francis' attitude to Junior's team after Junior came out with that big engine. No way were these guys going to catch a break. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know that I would call it revenge. I would call it maybe frontier justice. (laughs) Well, that's pretty good. And the reason why I say that is, you know, NASCAR says, okay, you're going to show us up. All right. You better hold on. (laughs) That's right. You're exactly right. And it has done it, believe me, more than once. And I might add other professional sports can be the same way. I've seen it in basketball. I've seen it in football. And I've seen it in hockey in all my years of covering sports. If you do something that the umpires, the referees don't like, then you're going to get flagged (laughs) or tagged or whatever for the rest of the contest. You're going to pay the price but there's going to be a little bit of interest tacked on too. That's right. (laughs) And in Pete's defense, he said that he and Mike Hill, who were in charge of the operation after everybody got suspended, they had nothing to do with what had taken place, but they were paying the price for it. And like I said, that's been more than three decades ago. And you could still hear the frustration in Pete's voice all these years later. Now, with that being said, Pete said that he wished that Dick Beatty could have lived forever in NASCAR because that's the amount of respect that he had for Dick. Everybody respected Dick Beatty. Dick was a good guy. Now, he was a tough, tough cop. Right. But he had everybody's respect. And I would kind of hate to admit how much research that I did on this, but <laughs> it's kind of like that old Looney Tunes cartoon with Ralph Wolf. It wasn't Wally Coyote. It was Ralph Wolf and Sam Sheepdog, where they spend all day fighting each other, but they leave work with their arms around each other's shoulders <laughs> like their buddies. There was one other big reason why Dick Beatty was so popular with the NASCAR competitors. You're right. He was tough, but he was fair. Now, I'm going to phrase this the best way I know how. The previous Winston Cup director slash chief inspector was Bill Gazaway. And Gazaway never earned that kind of respect because the competitors felt Gazaway was always, shall we say, up to something. Sometimes he made calls just to make himself look good, they thought. Sometimes they thought he was up to something and came after you for no reason. They just did not trust him or respect him. That changed when Dick Beatty came on board. The old good cop, bad cop routine. Only bad cop came first. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Steve Wade naming names, baby. (laughs) 
Pete decided to rejoin Terry Labonte at Hagen Racing during the 1992 season, but first he had to go tell Junior about it. And Junior, when Pete goes to talk to him, Junior was washing out his dog lot. When he was telling us that story, and I don't know if this was the case with you, I was sure that Pete was about to tell us that Junior turned the hose on him, <laughs> which might have made for a better story. But sadly, that was not the case. According to Pete, Junior told him to not even take his toolbox so that if things didn't work out with Terry and Billy, that he could come back without a problem. Now, that, that shows volumes. That shows you how much respect Junior had for Pete and how much he thought of him as a team member. All 1993 at North Wilkesboro Speedway. Pete and the rest of the crew are pulling out all the stops trying to get team owner Billy Hagen a win. They tested three cars. Terry picked which one he liked the best. And they unload the next race weekend at North Wilkesboro with some tricks up their sleeve. Terry oh, can press my. a button uh, yeah. in the car and kill power to one of the cylinders, which according to an anonymous source of mine, served as a poor man's traction control. The driver would struggle trying to modulate the throttle with a lot of horsepower on old tires at tracks with worn out racing surfaces, which North Wilkesboro most certainly was. Yes, it was. You stomp on the gas with slick tires on a slick surface, and it's like you're on ice. Now, they killed the power a little bit, and the car actually stuck better in the corner. Push the button again, and you've got power down the straightaway. So it was a perfect situation until <laughs> <laughs> the only problem was the cylinder wound up croaking altogether, and he didn't have power down the straightaway, and Terry dropped to a seventh-place finish in this North Wilkesboro event that we're going to talk more about in our second segment. Terry left at the end of that season in 1993 to join Hendrick Motorsports, and Pete had a decision to make. He had talked to Ricky Rudd about joining the team that Ricky was starting, and things looked good there. But then Mike Hill tells Pete at Charlotte that Junior and T. Wayne Robertson wanted to talk to him. And again, this is the respect that mm -hmm. Junior Johnson had for Pete Wright. If Junior and T. Wayne Robertson, who was the head, of sports marketing enterprises, the arm of R.J. Reynolds that ran the racing program. Those two guys want to talk to you. You better drop what you're doing and listen. There was a new team starting with sponsorship from the Camel Cigarette brand. Travis Carter was going to be the team owner, and apparently Junior and T. Wayne wanted Pete as crew chief. That was all well and good, but Travis evidently wanted Donnie Wingo or Todd Parrott is his crew chief. And from what Pete said, it showed. One thing led to another. They go to Michigan. They fail to qualify. And the next day, Travis tells Pete that he is going to take over setting the cars up. That doesn't sit very well with Pete, as you can imagine. And Pete quits, goes home, and he gets on his lawnmower to start mowing the grass. And a big Suburban shows up. <laughs> and it's Daryl Waltrip and his team manager, Clyde Booth, and they want Pete to go to work for them. Pete tells them that he's not interested. So Clyde and DW leave, and then DW comes back. And this time, 
He's got Stevie with him. <laughs> Daryl is rolling out the big guns. He really wanted Pete. Pete worked with DW before getting hooked up with Jay Fry at MB2 Motorsports, and he worked there for years. Now, Steve, I don't know what kind of impression that you were left with after we talked to Pete, but Pete has this awesome story in racing. And then, of course, he had the situation with his son, Adam. But that's what I love about doing this podcast is every single person that we talk to has a story. Has great stories, Rick. No doubt about it. Every single one of them. And that's what's enjoyable about doing this, really. That is what makes it all. Hey, race fans. John Dodson here from NASCAR Technical Institute. NASCAR Tech is open and enrolling, with classes starting every three to six weeks. In our 48-week automotive technology program, students learn everything from vehicle electronic technology to diagnostics and drivability. And as our exclusive educational provider for NASCAR, we offer a 15-week NASCAR elective where students learn engines, fabrication, aerodynamics, pit crew essentials, and more. NASCAR Tech also offers 36-week welding and CNC machining training programs so you can choose the path that best fits your career goals. Ready to see how you can get started? Visit uti.edu slash NASCAR today. NASCAR Technical Institute prepares graduates to work as entry-level automotive service technicians. Some graduates who take NASCAR-specific electives also may have job opportunities in racing-related industries. NASCAR Tech is an educational institution and cannot guarantee employment or salary. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. The October 7th, 1993 issue of Winston Cup scene. If you were a Rusty Wallace fan back in the fall of 1993, this was the good news. Rusty started 11th in this race. He led twice for a total of 181 laps and won at North Wilkesboro. It was Rusty's eighth win of a season in which he had won five of eight short track races to that point. And Steve, he had finished second in the other three. That's a pretty doggone good average. Very good average. And Rusty was running so well for the championship that season, partly because of his record on the short track. The point system then, forget the playoffs, the point system then was built on consistency. And running well at the short track helped you with that. In the last 11 short track races, going back to the previous year in 1992, he'd finished no worse than fourth. So he had a heck of a short track program. However, here's the bad news, at least when it came to Rusty's championship hopes that year. After all that, he gained just 10 points on Dale Earnhardt, who qualified 10th to Rusty's 11th. And for this race, he then finished second, 1.64 seconds behind Rusty. So they were there around each other all day and could not separate. Absolutely. It was close, very close at that point. But here's where Rusty showed the strength for the season. Since the July race in Daytona, 
by the time they got to North Wilkesboro, he shaved off 272 points from Earnhardt's lead to make it a real contest. With four races to go in the 1993 season, Dale led Rusty by 72 points in the Winston Cup standings. 18 laps to go at North Wilkesboro. Rusty made a move that he felt gave him the win. Harry Gant and Derek Cope were lapped cars, but side by side, as they raced through turns one and two, Rusty saw a sliver of an opening. And when I say a sliver, it was tiny. But he took the shot and he went between them. And Dale got trapped between Harry and Derek for a moment. And that was it when it came to the race for the win. Rusty said later, I saw the 98 car, which was Derek Cope, point his finger to the bottom and let Harry pass him on the inside. There was just enough room for a car to get through. So I stood on the throttle and drove it on through because I knew if I had to wait to pass them all around that corner, that would put Dale all over me. I knew if I made it, I would put a lot of ground on him. And I did. It was a first-class move into the lead. There was not hardly any room for Rusty to make that pass, but he gambled on it, and he won. There was a first-lap crash that gobbled up 13 cars with at least some sort of damage, including Dale. He was involved in that first-lap crash. Bill Elliott said, they started, and I started. And then all of a sudden, everybody stopped. Mark Martin said, I think it's pretty ridiculous. I never completed the first lap of either North Wilkesboro race this year without getting tore all to pieces. Heck, I qualified sixth. I don't think you could expect to be a lot further forward than that. What happened was, Ernie Irvin won the pole and Ricky Rudd was second. And when they started the race, they came around to take the green flag. Well, Ricky had jumped ahead of Ernie and knew that he might be penalized if he beat Ernie to the green flag to start the race. So he stopped. And when he stopped, that blocked everything for everyone behind him and created that wreck. And Terry Labonte finished seventh in this event after leading twice for a total of 53 laps before the halfway point. Terry said, our engine went sour. No kidding. (laughs) (laughs) That's four weeks in a row. We've had good cars, but we can't seem to make it all the way. The motor was going away when I was leading. When everybody got good tires on, it showed up more. On real hot tires, it wasn't too bad. We were really hooked up there for a while. And then it started skipping at the end of the straightaways. And that was all she wrote. Later, Terry added, we could have won if we'd had a better motor. They blame me and Pete for everything that happens. But you can't do anything if the motors don't hold up. Now, strangely enough, Steve, <laughs> for some reason, Terry did not mention the device that he could press to kill power to one of the cylinders in the engine. Well, now that you've explained how they use this cylinder trick to create basically traction control, I still wonder what good does keep killing a cylinder like that do in the end? And what happened is what I thought would happen. You'd have engine failure. You drop a cylinder permanently. I mean, I don't see where this really helped them all that much. I bet then again, I don't build motors. According to my anonymous source, 
killing the power to one of the cylinders drops power momentarily and gives the car better traction in the turns. He hits the button again. He's got full power and he can motor on down the straightaway. He's still messing with a cylinder. I'm surprised Waddell Wilson told you that. (laughs) It was not Waddell. (laughs) Rule changes designed to slow cars in the season's fall races at Charlotte and Atlanta were tested at Charlotte. It was called the 5551 rule. Ground clearance for the front air dam went to five inches, up from three and a half inches. The rear spoiler would be five inches tall by 57 inches wide, down from six and a half inches tall and 57 inches wide. The minimum roof height went up to 51 inches from 50 inches. Ever the philosopher, Richard Childress said, well, it's kind of like baseball. The good ones are going to be able to hit the curveball. And he is exactly right. The good teams always manage to work with the NASCAR changes and make the most of them. Because I'll tell you something, if they don't, NASCAR will change the rules back. And we have seen that many times. And people are always fussing today about the written in stone rules that they feel basically stuff teams into a box that they can't break out of. And that's one side of the argument. They feel like it takes away the team's creativity. Now, how far creativity goes into something illegal yeah, that's, <laughs> that's another debate. Well, here's the other side of the argument. The 5551 kind of rule changes happened all the dang time back then. And Correct. Steve, the fussing and the complaining and the whining was constant. If Chevrolets were doing good, Ford, they were all fussing. And if a Ford was doing good, the Chevrolets were fussing. It was constant. Where the happy meeting is, I do not know. But I do know this. The common denominator is this. People in the garage griped in the 1990s and people in the garage gripe in the 2020s. (laughs) Well, that's all true. And as you illustrated, rule changes went on all the time. Now, back in the days of the heavy factory participation, it was even worse. Oh, yeah. Because the factories are themselves would come up with all kinds of tricks and it was a real headache for nascar to try to balance this act when one manufacturer clearly created something that was superior to everyone else nascar would attack them change the rules so they have to go back to the old way and be on a par with the other teams it was a nightmare Well, it was all done in the name of keeping the competition close. I obviously don't think it was done in order to punish a manufacturer for coming up with something new or improved or whatever. Right. I think it was just done in the name of keeping everything close. You didn't want anybody running away with the field every single week, which tended to happen anyway. You're right. NASCAR, most of the time, made its rule changes to keep the competition fair. The other times that it changed the rules were safety's sake. This is why we saw a carburetor place to slow the cars down at Talladega and Daytona. This is where we saw the roof flaps come in. All of those changes to the rules and how cars were built were done in the name of safety. So safety on one hand, competition on the other. That's where NASCAR always had to look. 
Buddy Baker announced plans to retire as a driver to concentrate on his television work in this issue. He had been out of action once beginning at Watkins Glen in mid-1988, but then returned for a few races each season from 1993-1992. He had actually made the decision to retire as a driver in 1992, but then Rick Hendrick came calling the following season in 1993 with an offer for Buddy to drive Jeff Gordon's backup car at Talladega. Now, that was the plan, but Buddy said in this story, I had tested the week before with Ken Schrader and Jeff Gordon and ran well. I was thrilled and I thought I would give it a shot. But when we got down there, we had to cut the quarter panels up. Then NASCAR didn't like the cowl on the car. With the restrictor plate, that is all a package and everything has to work together. When we unloaded, we were fast enough to be in the top 20. But by the time we beat around and took the air cleaner off, it just ended up not close to the same car we had planned to race. Now, Buddy also talked about stepping out of the car in 1988 after getting hurt at Charlotte in that year's Coca-Cola 600. I was fixing to be dead. I owe my life to Dr. Jerry Punch. I explained to him the symptoms I'd been having in the race car for two months. I was running up in the points and I was trying to make it to the end of the year but I was getting dizzy and having tremendous headaches. When I practiced at Watkins Glen, I knew things weren't right. And when Buddy did come back, actually the first cup race that I ever attended at Atlanta in the spring of 1990, that was Buddy's first race back after he'd been injured. When he came back, the results weren't exactly spectacular. His best finish in a total of 17 starts was an 11th in the 1992 Daytona 500, and most of the rest weren't nearly that good. Buddy said, I don't think when I came back, I dedicated myself to racing like I did before. That was my whole life up until then. I ran decent in a couple of cars after I returned, but I wasn't at the same intensity as I was before I was injured. He's very, very right on that point. I saw Buddy in the hospital after his injuries in 1988, he actually had a tube running into his forehead. That scared me just looking at that. But that indicated that he had some kind of head injury that really never went away. He complained about headaches. He complained about dizziness. And I can understand all that. And though he tried to come back and run a few races over the next few years, I think it was a good thing that he ultimately retired because he wasn't going anywhere and he needed to be healthy. Pete Wright talked about not exactly being thrilled with Billy Hagen's deal with John Andretti in this week's installment of our interview, but this issue had a feature on John's adjustment from IndyCar to NASCAR. John said, at the end of last year, I just got real frustrated. When you're always giving 100%, 100%, 100%, and you're not getting results, you can do two things. You can change, or you can accept those results. I don't accept them, and I just went out to do something different. And he did something different. Oh, yeah, he sure did. (laughs) There was another feature in this issue about Evelyn Missock and her book of poetry, The Quickie Chronicles. Evelyn became friends with Alan after she had sent him one of her poems about him, and Evelyn said, In this story, I felt there was such an image about him that I didn't feel was accurate. 
he put that image out there. It was intentional on his part. And there were people out there who cared about him despite what he thought. Here was this Prince Charming who didn't think he was all that charming, who touched my very ordinary life. I met Evelyn after she called me at the scene offices one time and asked me if I could help her get her book published. The only thing I knew to do was, well, send it to me and I'll take a look at it. And it was very, very interesting how someone could take all that time and write very good poetry all about one man. So I did fish around. I finally got a hold of a publisher who wanted to do it. And we made it like a chapbook out of it. It wasn't a hardback and it really wasn't a paperback. We got 500 copies of it published and delivered to Evelyn. And a lot of them were sold later after Alan's passing when it was used for charities in his name. That's where we sold a lot of them through scene. She did a very good job on that book. Speaking of books, you had to name a book, hint, hint, or a collection of books other than yours or mine (laughs) (laughs) that a NASCAR fan should start with. What would that book or books be? Oh, I think you can't get wrong with the biography of Junior Johnson. I mean, that's for sure. Oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. Me and Tom Higgins wrote that. (laughs) Well, Rick, I know what my choice would be, but you go ahead because my choice is your choice. I'm going to go with Greg Bilton's 40 Years of Stock Car Racing, Volumes 1 through 4, and then also 40 plus 4. Hands down, without a doubt, the most important series of books ever produced about NASCAR. Newspaper, Winston Cup scene, Grand National scene, but books... Absolutely, Greg Fielden and 40 years of stock car racing. Greg tracked down photos and race rundowns and wrote brief reports on every race in NASCAR history from the very beginning in 1949 through the end of 1993. Now, that was a Herculean and important task that Greg undertook. Absolutely. And I'm very glad that he did it. Interestingly, he was one of a couple of well-known historians back in the day. The other one was Gene Granger, who wrote a lot of material for Scene in the early days. And I really thought Gene was going to be the one to publish a series of books like that because he was so adamant about collecting correct NASCAR history. But he never did. Greg was the first one to do it, and to date the only one to do it. And that made all the difference. Greg said in a column in this issue, I tried to document the sport because it had never been done before. NASCAR, some of their records are scattered here and there. They're more interested in plugging a sponsor than in what happened 30 or 40 years ago. I don't subscribe to that theory. Everybody in baseball knows who Babe Ruth and Joe DiMaggio are, but not everybody who follows racing know who Joe Weatherly and Curtis Turner and Fireball Roberts are. This is one way to let people know who these guys were. We shouldn't forget all those pioneers for today's guys 30 years from now. And with every apology to former scene photographer Larry McTie, bingo. That's why we do what we do here at the Scene Vault Podcast, so people won't forget the people who were covered during Scene's era. 
during Scene's heyday in the late 70s through the 2000s. And that is a job we enjoy doing. Hi, race fans. I'm Dave Marcus. Hey, race fans. This is Johnny Benson. Hi, I'm Ray Evernham. Hello, everybody. This is Ronnie Thomas. Hello, this is Pete Wright. You're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Hello, Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens. And if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports. So whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter scene at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. This podcast has been brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. And before we conclude, I just want to talk about North Wilkesboro a little bit and how cool it has been to go out to the track and everything. But also, because I live so close to the track, it has afforded me the, the opportunity to meet up with some of our listeners. Carter Finch was here, and I got to eat with him at Davy's Snack Bar. and then last week i got to have lunch with chris clark and i met his wife and they actually stayed here in yakinville based on my recommendation (laughs) so that's been the cool thing about the races being so close to here again and fans coming into the area and and visiting and everything and uh, chris i had to laugh with chris chris acted like it was a big deal that he was having lunch with me. Well, I didn't I'm, I'm just Rick, man. I'm just Rick. <laughs> well, what happened in North Wilkesboro was just a very good thing for the track and for racing. It was sold out. It was a terrific race. Dale Jr. was all over the place, speaking with fans, racing well, finishing third in the race. He just made the most of what he had to do up there. And I think that what happened at North Wilkesboro was just perfect for it to continue to lure racing and even NASCAR. Travis and I was just wasn't getting along. We was running old cars at Junior. My kill didn't want. I turned that damn phone off. I'll turn back on sometime. <laughs> right. This thing's haunted. <laughs> Mine is too. But all right. 